Welcome to Heartland History, the official podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird, a co-host of this pod and assistant professor of at, of history at Eastern Illinois University. Almost forgot who I was there for a second. I am joined uh, by my friend uh, Ramya Swamprakash. Ramya, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, hi, everyone. I'm glad to be back. Um, and thank you for listening to us. Um, I'm Ramya Swayam Prakash. Do not worry about remembering my name. I don't. Um, <laughs> I am an assistant professor of um, environmental, digital and integrative studies at Grand Valley State University, where I do a bunch of stuff. Um, and I'm very excited for our episode today. In fact, my child this morning was really upset that we didn't have a new episode to listen to on the car ride to campus. Um, so I was berated a little like, why aren't you working harder? Why don't you have a new episode? What do you do with your life? Um, yeah. But anyway. So. Yeah, he uh, he is uh, certainly our most um, audible critic of the podcast, but also our our biggest supporter. So, you know, I guess it's like one of those things we have both coming from the same audience member. Indeed, indeed. He, he'd make a great uh, film critic, I hope. Um, we'll do a bonus episode with him sometime to give us some highlights of uh, what indeed. we're missing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well we it has been a minute to your point like we have not put out a podcast in a while so this is um hopefully to sort of you know i you know everyone out there has been yearning for another episode and and we we felt that so we decided to to put some together for you yeah we're excited about the next few episodes right yes and we've got a few in the backlog so do not expect a you know three month hiatus from us uh in the future we we have some ready to go but we've hit some hiccups along the way mm -hmm. Our, our interview today, though, is with Dr. Christopher Alley, who is the Pioneer's Chair in Telecommunications and a professor of telecommunications at the uh, Belisario College of Communications at Penn State University. His research interests include all media and telecommunication, telecommunications policy and regulation, broadband policy, critical political economy, critical geography, comparative media systems, qualitative research methods, media localism, and local news uh but we're talking to him about his his brand new book uh farm fresh broadband the politics of rural connectivity that came out uh just a few years ago uh semi-recently uh from mit press in 2021 which examines the complicated terrain of rural broadband policy in the united states um what should people be looking for in this episode ramya um, I think one of the things that struck me about this conversation was the ways in which, uh, like, Dr. Ali is able to um, create a sort of an analytical landscape that sort of goes beyond the binary of the urban and the rural, um, and while keeping the focus predominantly on um, a rural broadband or the lack thereof, he sort of draws parallels between what happens in other sectors, um, as well as the, and, and this is a chapter that, you know, both you and I gravitated towards, mm -hmm. um, the history of broadband uh, regulation um, and what that has meant in the last 50, 60 years, um, you know, the legacies of early broadband and, and cable sort of regulation uh, but also the challenges it throws up in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, that really stood out. Um, but I think the other thing was just the fact that, you know, he went out into the rural heartland to sort of 
you know, do the driving and talk to people and get a sense of, you know, what was happening. Um, and I think that drives the narrative of the book really strongly. Um, but I think the conversation as well. Um, so those are two things. And I really liked what he said about being an outsider because he's Canadian looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just like a personal thing for me because I am not American. Um, but here I am writing and sort of working through what the Midwest means. So it was mm-hmm. sort of, you know, just felt a little bit of affinity towards that. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is another social scientist uh, interview, which we've had with you now. And um, it, it does strike me, again, thinking about sort of the overlaps of what it offers for historians. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, we definitely focused in on that one chapter, but it, it, it led to a lot of interesting conversations. It's always interesting to see how social scientists pull from history um, when thinking about the present. Um, and mm-hmm. I, th- I thought that was a really interesting part of the conversation as well. Yeah, yeah. And then they say history is not relevant. I'm not sure why they say that because everybody know. loves history. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. they're wrong. The they out there that we're talking about. Indeed. Any other housekeeping items, Ramya, that you can think of? Well, we're already in March, so in a couple of months, it's the Midwestern History Association's annual conference. Oh, oh yes, yes, and 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 Ramya and I have just recently heard that. Of course, we will be in attendance. Our panel was accepted. Mm-hmm. The audience celebrates with us, including your son. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so everyone should be, of course, you know, hurrying and registering for that conference, which will be uh, in mid-May. Yes. All right. Well, without further ado, should we uh, should we start a podcast? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, well, Dr. Uh, Christopher Alley, thank you so much for being on Heartland History today. Thank you so much for having me. Great, great. Well, um, maybe before we jump into uh, your work, Farm Fresh uh, Broadband, I wonder if you could talk more about the background uh, uh, to this work. What led you to examine rural broadband policy? Uh, and perhaps you could give us a little bit about your path to this particular project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a what a great place to start and get to introduce myself to all of your listeners as well. Um, so I have a PhD in communication studies, and I specialize in communication policy. And my dissertation was actually about local television policy in Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Um, that became um, my my first solo authored book called Media Localism. And then I did this massive project on the future of small town newspapers. So we've got television, we've got newspapers, um, and all of my work uh, revolves around uh, local communication in some way, right? Communicating through television, um, through newspapers. But then there was this outstanding thing that was terrifying, which was the internet, um, particularly in local areas, particularly in rural areas. And I I knew um, that I needed to tackle it. I wanted to tackle it. I originally thought the book would be purely about broadband to the farm. and then I realized that broadband to the farm and farm broadband mapping and precision agriculture was actually one component of a much, much larger issue called rural broadband. Um, so I approached the book uh, like I do all of my work, which is a deep dive into policy. Then I did some interviews and, at, you know, kind of like expert interviews, talking to the experts in the field, talking to regulators. And then about halfway through um, 
writing the book, I realized that maybe my readers won't find 300 pages worth of policy analysis as like captivating as I do. <laughs> and I needed to put a human face on broadband and broadband policy. And this is actually something that I see lacking with legislators is that we don't think about broadband as being about people. Um, and so uh, for two weeks, one summer, my hound dog, Tuna, and I drove 3,600 miles across the Midwest oh, um, to talk to folks about broadband. And, and we went from uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where I was living, um, to Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, which is where my parents are from. And along the way, Tuna and I collected stories that then get reflected back both in my book um, and when I give presentations and conversations like the one we're having today. So since you brought up the Midwest, one of the things that we've begun asking our authors is what is the Midwest to you? Uh, how do you define it, characterize it, um, especially through the boundaries of rural connectivity? It sounds like it might be roughly a, a roughly 3,600 uh, uh, mile drive. <laughs> no, yeah, sorry. <laughs> In, indeed. Um, you know, I, 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 when you sent me this question, um, I originally boffed it. And I'm going to pivot away and saying that I'd, as a Canadian, I don't really have an investment in this issue of policing boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, for my book, I used the definition of the census um, because I didn't grow up thinking about things like the Midwest and the East Coast. You know, I was thinking about the Prairie Provinces and, uh, you know, um, and, 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 and British Columbia and, and the Arctic, really. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my Fifth Amendment here and, um, <laughs> and, and, and respectfully decline answering what I think is the Midwest. But I'll, I'll use the census for my book. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a question that we've, we've started asking more and more, and I really do like it because it's, I mean, we're not, you know, the Midwestern History Association is still relatively, I don't know if we'll use any of this, I'm just going to talk. But the Midwestern History <laughs> Association is relatively new that it does not have sort of like this established regional definition in the same way that I think mm -hmm. like a Western history or Southern history, it, it's more tangible. Right. And I think once you really dig into it, people don't really agree on what <laughs> the mm -hmm. Midwest means yeah, at this like yeah. deeper level. And so it's, everyone's got a different answer. So I think that's very, I actually think your census or thinking about it like places, what you make of it is in fact the telling answer, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I saw, I don't know if y'all saw that big debate on Twitter about what is the Midwest. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. And I was debating, I was like, oh, maybe I should weigh in. And then I was like, no, this is, I am not. <laughs> Uh, yep. I'm not weighing in on a Twitter debate about the definition of the Midwest and whether or not Northern New Yorker and Buffalo constitutes the personality of a Midwest yeah. community. You know, um, that's not for me. But, um, you know, as I, I I've done a lot of research into like what constitutes a place. Right. And place mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. mind is both the intangible community and the geographic location. Right. Um, mm -hmm. How we identify. Um, so place can be what you make of it sometimes. So now we're going to use that bit because that's perfect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to throw. I'm just going to toss out some uh, some sound bites for y'all. Exactly. We'll, we'll, we will. We'll send you the rough cut, and you can say, "Um, no, I don't want to get in that Twitter <laughs> debate." Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. I never want to get into a Twitter debate. <laughs> no, that's like two days gone, and like the, the blood pressure's up. I'm like, why did I do this? Yep. Um. What, what What's really interesting about your work? is that you are trying to think about, you know, this really modern problem, right? Like this lack of broadband connectivity in rural America. But, you know, you first turn to history to try to think about sort of modern policy answers. In particular, you're, you're interested in 
the Rural Electrification Act of 1936 uh, and its several subsequent adjustments um, as a model to think about broadband. And, and maybe to start things off, uh, could you tell us about the REA, its history, and, and how you see this program as a helpful model, model for the development of rural broadband? To your question about the Rural Electrification Administration, um, just as a bit of a teaser, uh, let's jump ahead. Or let's jump behind maybe just two years and say that in March 2021, President Biden said broadband is the next electricity, right? And and I think when we think about that term, we often think, well, broadband is as important now as electricity was back then. Broadband is the new electricity or the next electricity. Um, but to me. It signals a very important history lesson. It's not just that it is important, but it's also signifying a pathway for how we can get to connectivity. And so the Rural Electrification Administration um, originally began as an emergency agency um, in the early days of FDR's New Deal. Um, FDR campaigned um, both uh, at the state level and then at the federal level running for president on rural electrification. Um, he saw, you know, um, uh, he saw the importance of it. He saw the lack of it. And when at that point in the 1930s, when we're talking about rural, we're really talking about farming communities, right? Um, the notion of rural has certainly shifted. Uh, but um, the the REA, the, the Rural Electrification Administration, was made permanent in 1936. And it was tasked with connecting rural America to the electric grid. And one of the things that it did that I take a lot of inspiration for, well, actually, let me back up. It did a couple of things. One, it de developed a coherent plan for rural electrification. Two, it bypassed the big power companies and went local. And I, when I say it went local, I mean, it funded through loans, the creation of local electric cooperatives. And today there are over 900 local electric cooperatives um, involved in the provision of electricity throughout the country. Um, so, so I, and I think this is probably the most important lesson that I took away from it is the bypassing of the largest providers to create the sense of localism and community ownership. The third thing it did that I think is just super cool is it actually went to local communities. It had something called the REA circus. And what it was, was demonstrating how rural folks could use electricity. And the parallel here with broadband is that we often think, um, you know, so long as you have access to the internet, you're fine. We don't think about things like skill set. Do you know how to use a computer? Do you know how mm -hmm. to send an e email? Do you know how to schedule your vaccine? So the lesson here from the REA is that it went local and had these conversations in place. Um, and this program was incredibly successful, the Rural Electrification Program, so much so that in 1949, Rural Telephone was placed under the uh, authority of the REA, and it did the exact same thing. It championed, it galvanized, it funded local telephone cooperatives. And today, um, in my opinion, it's really the telephone and electric cooperatives who are doing most of the pioneering work when we're talking about bringing up fiber optic uh, uh, broadband connections to rural, remote, and tribal areas. So as you lay out in the book, uh, the REA was incredibly successful at fixing the problem of rural electrification as well as telephony in the decades after its design. However, rural broadband, um, I swear English is my native language, um, however, rural broadband um, clear, was clearly an extension of you know this style of connectivity uh, and it still remains in use. Um, this seems to imply the political economy that enabled these 
sorts of rural forward development policies no longer exists or at least uh, are greatly diminished um so i guess my question is what's changed how did the political will that enable rural electrification give way to modern issues of rural broadband connectivity oh that is a fantastic question thank you so much and i'll try not to uh spend all of the rest of our conversation <laughs> answering it because you know you have to look at a you have to look at a couple of things you have to look at our how our relationship to government has changed right um we we're we're in this era of neoliberalism of massive amounts of deregulation and this um innate uh, uh uh normalized naturalized trust of the free market so you know putting all that in, in, in place now, the question is, why haven't we been able to bridge the infrastructure rural urban divide when it comes to broadband like we did with electricity? Um, in my work, what I find is that one of the major reasons why we didn't do this is that we privileged what I call the largest and the loudest providers. So we trusted the national providers um, to connect this country and we gave them a ton of money, a uh, billion dollars a year between 2015 and 2021, to connect rural and remote places. Um, they did that to the extent of they matched the letter of the law, but um, as you say, they did so with subpar technologies because they had very few guidelines that were actually attached to these billions of dollars in federal money. Um, and so this is why we see DSL technology, digital subscriber line uh, technology, which is uh, a twisted copper wire. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is the most common, um, type of broadband deployment in, in rural communities um, because it's cheaper. It's cheaper than fiber optics. Um, and so, you know, the federal government was paying these giant companies and they were deploying DSL, even though fiber was, you know, fiber's been around since the 1980s. We, we know it's the future-proof technology. Um, so what I say is that they use these conditions as a ceiling to meet rather than a floor to build upon. Um, and, and, and so one of the things I, I certainly argue in my book is the need to, whenever we think about funding programs, we need to make sure that eligibility is broad and not favoring just the largest national providers. And we've seen history repeat itself. And this is something that gets me very worried with the Infrastructure Act now. I mean, it is interesting. And, it, you know, you think about and you notice this at the that's sort of the front end of the interview as well. Right. But like you're you're a fan of cooperatives. Right. You see these as sort of a, mm -hmm. a, um, a way to push back. Um, Absolutely. And you see them yeah. as incredibly important uh, for the potential of helping to address this gap uh, of broadband in um, rural areas. In one chapter, uh, you focus on a particular county in Minnesota, Rock County, where uh -huh. you track the way yeah. a particular co-op right, took an incredibly rural community and managed to get 99.93% coverage. Um, and I'm going to quote your work here. You write, quote, in the history of American agriculture and the Midwest, especially cooperatives were cornerstone institutions, bringing rural areas, retail stores, grain elevators, creameries, telephones and insurance when the logic of the free market denied such services. And you go on. Minnesota even became Ooh, known. Did, I, did I write that? Oh, that's you, nice. you <laughs> became known as the cooperative <laughs> commonwealth for the number and diversity of its cooperatives. Um, I, I guess my question to you is like, what makes this historic institution, institution the co-op, so conducive to building out uh, broadband coverage? 
I'm not going to ask you about creameries. We can we can move past that. <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, we'll we'll save uh, cooperative creameries. Yeah. Um, uh, for anyone who wants more just on cooperatives, you should all go out and read Nathan Schneider's work. Um, he's written these, these amazing books on co-ops. Um, a couple of things that I think co-ops do very well when it comes to broadband. First of all, they have the infrastructure. Both obviously, telephone cooperatives have the telecommunications infrastructure. Electric cooperatives, because of a series of grants from USDA, um, all of their substations are connected by fiber now. And that's why electric cooperatives have started getting into retail broadband, because they already have a high capacity fiber middle mile. So all they have to do is spin off that middle mile into what's called the last mile and go to homes. Mm -hmm. So they've already had that kind of middle mile backbone funded by the federal government. So they were in a very good place to offer retail. Um, the other thing I think cooperatives do very well is that they are accountable. And I think the accountability has to do with being local. Um, the story of Rock County. So Rock County wanted someone to do, wanted a company to do fiber. They got bypassed by the national providers who didn't see the return on investment and they weren't going to settle for anything less than fiber. And they knew of this cooperative in neighboring South Dakota. And there's a quote from my book, and I'm just paraphrasing now, but this idea that there's a trust embedded in being local, mm. right? You, you're going to see your broadband provider if your coverage is out. And, and I, I think that is really important to think about when we, when, when, you know, when we look at deploying broadband, um, which is in my book, one of the things I argue is that local broadband is the best broadband. And I say that because um, it is accountable. It is trusted. And these companies, particularly cooperatives, are willing to take a much longer return on investment um, because they know that it's an investment in their communities. Right? Again, that kind of localism. Um, and, and we've seen this in contrast to the largest providers who often bypass rural, remote, and especially tribal communities. Right? They're not interested um, in serving these places because it doesn't provide the return on investment. Mm -hmm. so we got to go local. What are some of the biggest um, hurdles then for sort of enabling co-ops to to provide this broadband service? I mean, you do have several examples of uh, it being successful. I'm sort of curious then sort of like what what is stopping more co-ops from doing this sort of work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so most of the, if not all, uh, of the telephone cooperatives, there's uh, between 200 and 300, I can't remember the exact number, are providing retail broadband, right? Their telephone companies are providing broadband. There is a massive movement of electric cooperatives. It keeps going up year by year by year. One of the things that is um, uh, kind of st uh, stymieing or stalling complete um, deployment of broadband in for rural electric cooperatives is that it's a risk averse industry, right? They have a good thing going with them. Mm -hmm. They have a monopoly over electricity. So there is a concern then about the type of infrastructure, not literally just the, the fiber optic cables, but the support staff, the technicians, the customer service, right? Um, all of these things become really important. Um, so some, some electric cooperatives just haven't been, you know, as gung ho mm -hmm. about venturing into this. Um, you also, you know, it's another round of grant applications as well. And, and it's oh. very difficult, particularly to get a USDA grant, especially if you're a small, you know, uh, local cooperative with not a ton of resources at your disposal. Um, because let's remember that policy and even grants and loans, they're not written for local communities or cooperatives or small organizations, right? They're written for the technocrats um, and this very kind of mm -hmm. level. So, um, and uh, you know, one of the things that I'm really encouraged by when it comes to the Infrastructure Act, so the Infrastructure Act has provided $42.5 billion specifically for broadband deployment. Now, there's other billion for other components of the digital divide. 
Um, and there is language in the stipulations for this money that cooperatives cannot be discriminated against in eligibility. So the states are setting their eligibility criteria. They have to include cooperatives, which is great. Um, I think where we're seeing some pushback is that we're seeing um, uh, large industry um, uh, groups uh, lobby heavily at the state level. So when we're thinking mm -hmm. about state grants, a lot of all of this money is flowing through states. There's a huge presence there. So we're going to see a bit of a conflict, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I was I was excited to at least see that there is this non-discriminatory language in the Infrastructure Act, which at least gives cooperatives more of a fighting chance than it would, you know, if it wasn't there at all. Because states could really, you know, write the rules around mm -hmm. who is eligible for this money and who isn't. Um, yeah, all this talk of sort of localism, though, is making me think of... Um, when I first moved to the U.S., I was struck by the lack of internet access and connectivity, even in non-rural non-rural areas. Um, I first moved to the to the East Coast, and I was struck that there wasn't fiber optic, or even like what we called a broadband in India. Um, and I say what we call because it was based on cable networks. Um, and it, you know, growing up in India, connecting to the internet uh, over a fast or faster connection wasn't difficult or time consuming because you called up a guy and that guy sent a guy and then they fixed it. <laughs> um, and I grew up in, you know, in a large city like, like Bombay. Um, and even there, there was a bunch of local providers. So every like little, whatever locality uh, would have its own little provider who would do their mm -hmm. thing. And you, you'd call him at eight in the night and be like, bro, what's happened to my internet? Come to my house right now. <laughs> uh, and he'd come with his wire and be like, oh, it's the rain or whatever. Um, whatever. Um, but, you know, that was it. You had a guy and you called him and you yelled at him and that was that. Um, but my question, I guess, is a little more oblique in that, you know, in, in this conversation about um, localisms and how local providers especially you know the local electrical co-ops may be averse to um are risk averse but at the same time the policy infrastructure doesn't exist to promote a lot of um, co-ops to come into the business um so i guess my oblique question is about politics and politicians um i'm wondering if you you know you'd like to speculate um as to what and why politicians might gain from the lack of connectivity in rural rural areas um, to be more specific, I guess, the, is a rural disconnect seminal to a particular persuasion of populism um, in the U.S. as a whole, but I guess especially the Midwest, however we define it. Wow. Okay. Uh, big question. Um, and, and before I kind of delve into that, um, you know, you, you also bring up a very good point about urban connectivity. And, and just to be very clear to, to our listeners in this conversation, which is that I study the rural infrastructure gap when it comes to broadband. This, this is not to say that there aren't urban gaps. Um, there is a massive tribal gap. I think we're seeing a, a separation between rural and remote. There's a huge affordability mm -hmm. gap in this country. There's a hardware <laughs> gap. So when we, th when we speak about the digital divide, it is not exclusively a rural issue. Um, mm -hmm. It is not exclusively an infrastructure issue. I just happen to, to focus on that particular area in my scholarship. And I just think that's important to, to talk about because um, there, is, there is a critique that we've uh, kind of reduced the digital divide entirely to a rural issue. And by doing that, we've mm -hmm. forgotten that 18% of New York City does not have access to broadband. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we need to tackle all of these issues simultaneously, rural, remote, urban, tribal, um, affordability, infrastructure, digital skills, hardware, um, uh, kind of what I call in a recent article, cradle to grave digital learning. I mean, mm -hmm. 
This is the challenge at the policy level is how do we do this all at the same time? Because wires in the ground are useless unless you can afford the network and you know what to do with it, right? So this is a challenge for policymakers. The interesting thing about broadband is this might be really one of the very few nonpartisan or bipartisan issues in Congress right now. I mean, everyone agrees um, on the need for uh, uh, high-speed connectivity. Where we don't agree um, is the question of how much broadband is what I call in my book, good enough broadband. Um, I just did air quotes for anyone uh, <laughs> wondering what I meant by that. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is there is a conversation going around in Congress where we just need to get something out to rural and remote wow. and tribal areas. It doesn't matter what it is, just so long as it's what I call good enough broadband, right? doesn't matter how much it costs. doesn't matter the technology. We just need something that's, that's, that's good enough to kind of keep everybody quiet and complacent. Mm. Um, and, and this is really how we've thought about and developed rural broadband policy over the last 20 years. It's just, let's just get something out. Um, there's a famous, uh, famous line from um, an FCC commissioner, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, but something along the lines of like, rural America doesn't need a Lexus, they just need a Camry. Mm. And, and, you know, we've heard this discourse over and over again in so many different areas of rural life, right? Well, if you want something different, um, you know, move to a city or this is the quote unquote rural penalty where you have to pay more because you live so far away. Um, you know, all that is bunk, of course, right? Um, and and so this is where I see a massive tension at uh, at the congressional level. And we're seeing this literally in the definition of broadband. Right now, broadband is defined um, as a internet connection of 25 megabits per second download, three megabits per second upload. Um, whether or not that is good enough, it is not, but that's the mm -hmm. current definition. And there's a lot of debates right now going on at the FCC about whether or not we should raise it to 120. Um, USDA tried to raise it to 100, 100, and then Congress slapped it back down to 25, three. Oh. Um, so this is where, um, uh, 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 Ramia, to answer your question is where it gets really political is how, what is good enough for rural communities. And obviously for me in my work, I say that, you know, everything needs to be par. It's not, it's uh -huh. not getting something out. It's getting the type of connectivity that so many of us take for granted. Um, so that it's not fulfilling the digital needs of yesterday or today. It's fulfilling the digital needs of 10 years from now. And that's what we need to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, that's what policymakers should be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's such a good transition. I was thinking about, I mean, as, as Rami and I meet and, or, or discuss, you know, books and literature or, you know, historical scholarship to bring on here. I, um, I think what's interesting, we've, we've done a few now, which are sort of like either people in social scientists or policy who are thinking about like pretty modern issues facing sort of Midwesterners. I mean, again, your book is not explicitly about the Midwest, but you do focus a lot on Midwest places. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I think in us doing this, and Rami, I don't want to speak for you, is thinking about like that history moves through to the present day, of course, right? Mm -hmm. but, and so you look to history. I mean, your first chapter really is a historical record of the REA of the importance of co-ops, historically speaking. I think that's really great. And so uh, I'd say that as a sort of, you know, just as for the listeners to say, like, why you should, you know, think about this research, why you should think well, about this you. book. Um, but I, I, yeah, that'd be my question that I pose to you is what should listeners or members of the Midwestern History <laughs> Association take away from this? And then, you know, yeah. In what ways does it make us rethink the history of the rural Midwest? And I also love um, 
to think about, you know, as someone who is interested in like modern policy debates, what questions do you think historians or do you wish historians should be asking about the past that might make your work like easier <laughs> or or help you do the sort of modern research uh, that you want to do? Wow. I mean, tons of good questions there. Um, so I, I might need your help in recalling them. Let's take the uh, the last one first, I guess, yeah, is what yeah. can historians do to make my life easier? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, I think one of the things that is really important to understand. So right now, one of the big controversies in broadband is the broadband map. Um, and uh, um, particularly, we don't know who has broadband and who doesn't. The FCC's failed mm -hmm. at this. Again, it's privilege of the largest providers. Um, we're seeing a new map, but the new map has a lot of problems, including the complete erasure of rural, remote, and tribal communities, um, which means they can't get funding. So again, the politics of this policy making is quite apparent in these new maps. Mm. Um, something that I've been really curious about, and I haven't been able to find it, so if anyone is listening and could help me, which is... Um, a critical history of, of, of rural mapping efforts. Um, mm. You know, one of the things I was looking for is has, has kind of critical, has cartography always disenfranchised rural communities, maybe by doing it too fast or by just, you know, literally flying over. I don't know. Mm. Um, but some, I'm really into critical, critical geography and critical cartography these days. So if any historians out there that can present a critical history of mapping rural communities, I think that'd be amazing. <laughs> um, you know, the other thing we can think about, again, thinking about mapping, but it's just, you know, we can always do more on the history of infrastructure. One thing that's really interesting to note is how much telegraph and telephone wires followed railroads, for instance. So mm -hmm, we've got mm -hmm. infrastructure layered on top of infrastructure. Then, of course, broadband was built on the telephone lines originally, um, mm -hmm. which is why we see uh, what... what uh, uh, some scholars call islands of availability or oasis of availability, right? We've got a county seat served here, but the town beside it isn't because one got the railroad and one didn't, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's some great there's some great connections here, and um, I know there's a, a a law article coming out soon on the telegraph history of the telegraph and what we can learn about um, policy today. Um, so the other thing is we don't have, you know, one thing I would love if I could just throw this out there for historians is, is to cite our work, right? Um, to, to cite our work. Oftentimes I find media and communication studies get kind of um, the, the short, the short end of the stick when it comes to um, the, you mm -hmm. know, who's citing whom and in the, in the politics of this. And we're doing some great work in the history um, of if infrastructure and history of policy. So um, I think we can get along uh, very well. And obviously, <laughs> broadband yes. um you know, oh no, it's so it's so important to think about and i think there are, there's a history lesson i want policymakers to take away and there's a history lesson i don't want them to repeat the history that i want them to take away is how we connected this country with electricity right we went local um and we empowered local communities and i, I say that's so important because 17 states right now either prohibit or inhibit municipal community broadband um wow. So we went local in the 1930s and we're failing to do that today. The, the history lesson I do not want to see repeated is that um, funding programs, even if they have broad eligi eligibility, are still favoring national providers. Um, uh. You know, uh, in the FCC's latest funding round, they gave Starlink almost $900 million and then had wow. to claw that money back because it turns out that Starlink couldn't do what it promised to do. Hmm. Um, 
so so again we see uh, there's lots of hype here and i think again going back to history if there's there's always hype with these whether or not it's, it's low with low earth orbital satellite or 5g which one's going to connect um connect the hinterland so to speak but part of what history teaches us is how we can peel back those ideological layers and see you know who's really benefiting from this hype and will rural mm -hmm. communities actually benefit from um from any of this hype when it comes to 5g for instance it's been a massive disappointment um mm -hmm. And but remember, you know, we can all remember those those amazing Verizon commercials and T-Mobile commercials with holograms and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's going to revolutionize the world. It really, you know, it really hasn't. And it's, you know, um, particularly uh, um, not fair to rural communities, um, I think, who, you know, goodness may have paused deployment plans for other technologies because they heard 5G was just around the corner. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answered. There was a lot of moving parts to that to that question, Candon, but I hope it kind of connected the dots between the conversation I want to have with, with historians. No, I think that's great. I, infrastructures. I think, you know, historians often don't acknowledge the sort of modern roots of their historical questions. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think like, I think an infrastructure history of the rural Midwest would be fascinating, but important. One of the interesting things are just, this is a, uh, just a, I just learned this and I just love, I was teaching this to my class the other day. We all know the company Sprint right? Mm -hmm. It was bought yeah. by T-Mobile. It was a massive cellular phone. Uh -huh. um, uh, the SPR in Sprint is Southern Pacific Railroad. Hmm. The Sprint oh, network wow. got its start because of Southern Pacific Communications. Um, and, you know, I, I just love these kind of these intersections wow. of, of of technologies and infrastructure and, and of course, history. And of course, as a, you know, critical political economist, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really fascinating for me to place the object of my study, which is broadband in conversation with what worked and what didn't, not just mm -hmm. in the last 20 years where we saw a lot of policy failure, but obviously in the last century. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking of like the, the SPR in, in, in sprint now. Um, <laughs> and I, and, and I thought what you said about sort of the convergence of, uh, between layers of te technology and infrastructure, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, but this conversation about sort of um, technology policy um, just made me think of, you know, perceptions also of technologies and what's what's acceptable, what isn't, um, mm -hmm. what's preferable and what isn't and how that impacts policy decisions, right? Um, makes me also wonder if rural um, populations are often typecast as, you know, not needing the internet because they're not doing the quote-unquote heavy lifting that media infrastructures mm -hmm. need to mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess it also, to, in my, you know, limited and uninformed opinion um, makes me think of how rural populations are often typecast and sort of boxed into like yeah. what they do and how they contribute to the economy. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And which again made me think of, you know, this is how it becomes easy to say good enough is the floor and not good enough is the ceiling and not the floor. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I find we don't give in within the kind of, let's call it the discourse of broad, rural broadband policymaking, right? Something that I've been noticing is that we don't give rural Americans permission to use the internet for fun. We say you have to use it for education and you have to use it for work or retraining or, you know, um, or, or benefits um, or, or booking, you know, doctor's appointments and telehealth. But we never have a conversation around um, 
you can binge Netflix if, mm. you know, if you want to, <laughs> right? Mm. And this is something that I see in the conversation on broadband in rural communities is that they could, it can only be used, quote unquote, utilitarianly and not at mm-hmm. all for pleasure. And this is why, you know, when I talk about the pillars of rural broadband um, in my book, I do make sure that I'm talking about quality of life, right? Why, why can someone in, in a rural community, why do we allow them through our conversations to only be able to use it for education, telehealth and economic development um, and, not, and not pleasure, not consumption, not you know, um, uh, streaming or, or communications or gaming or, or so have you. And so this is something I'm trying to inject a little bit more into the conversation. Um, and again, it goes back to the need to humanize broadband policy and mm-hmm. broadband technology. Uh, one of the arguments I make actually at the very last page of my book is that at the end of the day, broadband is actually not about policy or technology or money or companies or profit. Um, It's about people. Um, And we need to, you know, I argue for a kind of a people first way of thinking about broadband deployment. And we need to be talking about pleasure. What do people do Uh with the internet? Uh Um, Which is why when I talk to my students, and I always ask my students, you know, the types of connectivity um, that they experience, um, especially after, you know, during and after, quote unquote, the excuse me, during and quote unquote after the pandemic. I know we're not after the pandemic, Um, but I don't ask them what speeds they get. I ask them, what can you do with your internet, right? Can you download a PowerPoint? Can you you stream a movie? Can you have a Zoom conversation? And this is how Mm -hmm. I can assess my students' level of connectivity if we ever have to shift to Zoom um, or any sort of other video conferencing. Um, So uh, what I'm trying to say here is when it comes down to the presumptions that we take to policy of rural communities, it is, uh, you know, a series of communities that we deny pleasure to that we uh-huh. don't take for granted. Right. I mean, I streamed Netflix for like three hours yesterday after, <laughs> or yesterday uh, evening. Um, you know, why do I get to do that? But someone else, you know, we don't, they don't, they don't have the the privilege of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the idea of sort of broadband is largely a conversation about people. Right. I mean, that's, that's really what's at stake uh-huh. here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, customers, right. This is why, again, I say all broadband's local because at the end of the day, it ends at our home or mm-hmm. at our phones or at our businesses, right. It ends locally. Yeah. So solving the digital divide or the many digital divides need to also empower local communities. Mm-hmm. And I just think like you have the farm lobby, you should have like a farms for internet lobby or something. Um, <laughs> well, there is John Deere. John Deere is like lobbying, and then there's the American Broadband Coalition, which was started by Lando Lakes, the, uh, mm-hmm. the dairy cooperative. Yeah, um, and they're they're advocating heavily for um, uh, conversations around broadband to the farm. Um, one of the things that is difficult with these maps is that we don't map broadband to the farm, and so mm. the last statistic I saw is that sixty thousand farms still have dial up. Hmm. Um, that was from a report Eeks. done by USDA a couple of years ago. 60,000 farms still had dial-up. Um, you know, so this is something that a lot of us are thinking about right now is how to extend our mapping to make sure that we're mapping farmland. Yeah, I was just, um, Instagram yesterday post. there was somebody on Instagram who posted how there was a massive, uh, this is the brown person thing, but they were like, some rural um, maker was uh, is selling discounted ghee um and i was just thinking like their website was down i was thinking well does not have connectivity um but this makes sense if there's no information about farm internet to farm it's hard to to keep up these things up 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and we know that we need high speed connectivity to farms uh, for the next generation of agriculture. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, this is actually one of the reasons I, I kind of rested on the Midwest is I was really interested in precision agriculture for row crops, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, the Midwest is, uh, is producing mm -hmm. those in spades. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, plus I wanted to drive to Winnipeg and that took me through the Midwest. So it's kind of a win, win, win for everybody. Um, <laughs> uh in that and that you know i got to focus on thinking about soybean and corn um and and uh wheat of course um but uh, you know again perfectly knowledgeable that it would have been a different study had i gone to the rural vineyards of california or the islands of rural maine or the mm -hmm. tundra in alaska right these are different dynamics of rurality or Appal appalachia right um mm -hmm. which is where uh you know um um i've lived um adjacent to both in Charlottesville and now in State College. Mm -hmm. um, so rural again is is it's not just farming and I, I do make a point of saying that in the book that I'm not reducing rural to the farm, but my interest is, you know, ultimately these these large farming cities and farming communities and rural communities of the Midwest for this book. The next book's gonna be broader. Uh, it's got a title, I think I'm calling it Tales from the Digital Divide. Oops. It's a working title nice. right now. But the problem is nice. I spend a lot of time talking in my own work about how I don't like the term digital divide. So, you know, <laughs> well, Rami, do you have anything else? No, nothing. Okay. But this is a great conversation. So thank you. Yeah, Chris, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for reaching out and for having me. Yeah, this is this has been great. I, I you know, love talking about it. And thanks for uh, amplifying the book. I do appreciate it. <laughs>